Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me again in your Bibles to the Gospel of Isaiah. This is the right way to describe this book, and this passage that we are focused upon over these few weeks proves that. Starting in chapter 52, verse 13, we have the fourth, the fourth servant song, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to come when this book was written, and of course we know in hindsight has come and has accomplished the work that is described here for us in a passage that was written seven centuries before it actually happened in vivid detail. This chapter is aptly called the Passionel of the Old Testament. It was first given this title by Polycarp, that great church father, a disciple of John the Apostle. And in this chapter we have come to, we are now at chapter 53, looking at the first verses in the last chapter last week. Now we come to chapter 53. This is the chapter that most vividly describes the saving work of Christ on our behalf. It's because of what is revealed here that you and I can know that we are right with God. If we trust in this finished work that's described here, we can be sure we are justified. We are right with God based on faith in the finished work of Christ. And so when we come to chapter 53, it should stop all of us. I mean, it should make it, it should give us joy, it should give us a certain sense of sobriety over what it costs for us, but it should give us confidence that it is not because of something we have done, because we know what that would mean. It's because of the work of Christ on our behalf, and we have it displayed in full glory in chapter 53 of Isaiah. We will look at the next three verses in the passage, the first three verses of this chapter, but for necessary context. I will read all of chapter 53. Please hear as I read God's inspired and errant and authoritative word. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are once again moved by the revelation of this chapter in Isaiah. It reveals the basis for our salvation, the grounds of our salvation, the perfect substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Give us deeper insight as we focus on these opening verses of this magnificent chapter in this glorious display of your sovereign power, your amazing love, your marvelous grace. Please guide us by your Spirit as we come in contact with your holy word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is no way to overstate the importance of these verses for Christians. Written all these many, many years before their actual fulfillment, uh, we have on display for us the, the work that Christ did to provide salvation for us. Remember back in chapter 52, uh, you have the declaration of God responding to his people who cried out in repentance, saying that he will deliver them. And then he says... Uh, in prophecy of a time when they would come from Babylon back to Israel. And he said, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. Talking about those who would come back out of captivity to express God's salvation. But it was a picture of something greater that Paul references in chapter 10 of Romans. Uh, This is a reference to the bringing of the good news that God saves. And how does he save? That's exactly what we're studying now. He follows up by telling us how we would be saved by the substitutionary work of the servant of Jehovah. Whatever you came into this building with, bearing, Christ paid for it. It's over. He's taken it. He's forgiven you. And it's based on this revelation, as it was then fulfilled perfectly, that we can know this and we can rest in this. And so we come again to this passage, the first three verses looking at how this builds into the full picture of the suffering servant, the substitution for us. We see in the first verse, the servant revealed. And we discover how we need God's revelation in more than one sense. We also see in verse 2, the shocking humility of the servant. Um, It would not be the normal mindset of the Israelite to look for a humble servant. They were looking for a better king to come, a perfected king, or some kind of liberator. And so we're going to see the humble servant for a reason. He has to be humble for a reason. We need this kind of servant. Not limited by our human concerns about what a servant or a hero should look like. God gives us his perfect servant. Then also in the final verse, verse 3, we see the beginnings of his payment in that he is rejected. His initial rejection that happens when Christ comes is part of what he will undergo, his humiliation and his suffering for us. 
Let's begin at the first verse as we see the servant revealed now in more vivid detail. Slowly but surely, Isaiah has been opening up the picture of the servant to us. In three prior songs, we had bits and pieces of what the servant would do, who he would be, what he would look like. We know that he was God because of the way he would be exalted. But we see here he's a man as well. He's the God-man. And so we have this picture crystallizing for us in vivid detail in a way the Old Testament doesn't depict like. Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now there are two questions asked, and it says plural, from us. Now there are many prophets who lived before the time of Isaiah, Not all the prophets wrote Bible books. We know in the time, for instance, of Elisha and Elijah, there were many prophets, and God could differentiate between the true ones and the false ones, and we see that on display throughout the Word of God. But you know Moses for sure, and you also know that Jonah and Amos, they were before Isaiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Most scholars agree that Isaiah is speaking on behalf of, first of all, the prophetic message or community, if you will. We come to learn later that he identifies himself as one of God's people as well. But at the onset, he's speaking now of the revelation that's gone forth from the prophets. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Do you believe what has been said, the message that has come from us? And Isaiah speaking from himself and those who God specially equipped with his revelation. The second question, and it is related, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Have you heard us what we said? And of you, do you know what God's will is on that basis? Have you seen what God says he will do? That's what it means to say, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who knows what God's plan is based on what you have heard from us? Do you get this? Do you conceive of this? Does it make sense? Are you getting the message? That's what he's saying boldly and loudly and publicly to Judah and then over the generations to us as well. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, the picture that Isaiah is painting based on God's revelation is one of a Messiah who would look different from what they might have expected, as I mentioned. They would not know what he would look like if they were to simply draw up what they thought a Messiah or a liberator would look like. So that's why this revelation is given. It's not the picture they would have imagined. Not another perpetually atoning priest in all of his frailties. Not another king like David or Saul. Not even another prophet like Jonah or even Isaiah himself. No one could know the servant of Jehovah or understand his mission apart from God revealing who he was, and what he would do. It wouldn't make sense to earthly-minded people. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, I want you to think for a moment, if you're that first audience, and you're wondering about deliverance, you're in the general body of the people of God, and you're struggling to know what is the fate of us. God said he promised to us. And so you're looking for someone mighty, because you've seen that in proximity to your lifespan. If you knew Hezekiah, for instance... Now, for you and I, 2017, here at Redeemer, we believe that God revealed himself as Jesus came, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We'll say, we, we see it. 
but recognize how this is coming to them. It's challenging them with the reality that this must be revealed to them. You know because God revealed it to you by his spirit through his word, through his prophets. You believe because he's given you belief. How is that true? Well, when you look at Jesus who fulfills the servant of Jehovah and he's displayed in the gospel of John, John is unique in that John makes no apology for his purposes in writing. The other gospel writers are laying out, if you will, the history of Jesus' life to show this orderly account so people can see and compare and show it's true. The record is true. John fills in some of the gaps that aren't mentioned in the other gospels but says with no apology in the 20th chapter, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Servant of Jehovah. That's why I'm writing this book. And so it becomes interesting when you watch how Jesus interacts with people in the Gospel of John. In John 6, verse 65, Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, back to our passage. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's an important question. Jesus is saying, This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Now, following John, several chapters later, there's a bit of an apex in his earthly public ministry when his friend Lazarus dies. He raises Lazarus. Now, you would think that the Jewish leaders who are looking for the Messiah would be excited about this. The servant of Jehovah revealed himself. Instead, they're jealous of what he's done and and the people's uh, interest in him, and so they instead secretly find out, look for ways to kill him. We've got to kill Jesus. So, His disciples say to Jesus when they're with Lazarus after they've raised him, let's get out of here for a while. And instead, Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. Because he is the servant of Jehovah. Even his disciples don't think of him in this way yet, even though he's been telling them slowly but surely what he would have to do as the suffering servant before he'd be the exalted one. So they go to Jerusalem, and he's teaching. John chapter 12. Listen close because it directly speaks to Isaiah in the passage we're studying. John 12, Jesus answered, now, the judgment of this wor- now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man be lifted up? The people don't like the message he's saying. They know what he's saying. He's going to have to be lifted up in death. That doesn't sound like the Messiah we're looking for here. Who is this son of man, the people say? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now listen closely what John 12, 37 says. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Why? How could that be? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They had been shown all these things, but they were not allowed to believe it and grasp it and rest in it. Therefore, they could not believe, verse 39 says. And again Isaiah said, 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things. This is John speaking. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, talking about Christ. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Why do I spend so much time in this first verse and trying to express this to you? Because many people wonder, am I chosen? Has God chosen me? Am I elect? Using the lingo popular in our, in our tradition. Here's the reality. Do you rest in the described finished work of Christ for you? Do you think you're the one that makes yourself right with God or the merit of Christ make you right with God? Because if you believe it's the merit of Christ, then he has chosen you. Because you would not believe otherwise. The arm of the Lord is revealed to those who understand this. You could not understand this if it were not true. That's what grace is, by the way. It's God giving you faith to lay hold of Christ and his merit. And that's how you can be assured, no matter what you feel like, no matter what your weak look like, will I sin in such a way? Do you believe in the merit of Christ in your behalf? That's the determinant factor as to whether you're saved, whether you're redeemed. That's how you know if you're chosen. Stop worrying so much about who the elect are. Do you lay your, your complete trust in Christ? That's how you know. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Paul writing to the Corinthians in many places trying to help them with their assurance of salvation. That's a big problem for the Corinthians. They've come out of worldliness. They're struggling to shake it off and he keeps bringing them back to what is important. And he says in 2 Corinthians, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's God who gives this light. He's the one who shines on Christ that we may see. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We depend on God revealing Christ to us. There's two senses in which this is true. We know there's a God. Any rational person would look at creation and say there's got to be a creator. That's rational, by the way. That's not a faith leap at all. That just makes perfect sense. There's designed things... Just look at the design in it. There's a designer. There's a God. That's rational. It's irrational to say there's not. The problem is we're stuck. We don't know any more about how to be related to that God because of our sin. So we have to have special revelation. God has to reveal himself. And he speaks to the prophets to tell us of his plan to send Christ to be our substitute. But to lay hold of Christ personally, he has to also open our eyes. He has to give us life because we're dead. Dead people can't see, can't receive. And he gives us life. So that we can see and lay hold. And that's how we are dependent upon him revealing himself. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Another way of putting the verse, this side of faith. To you who believe what he has heard from the prophets about the servant, the arm of the Lord has been revealed to you. He's Christ. Let's look at the second verse. As now Jesus comes into fuller display. What he will have to do for us. It was mentioned in the last part of chapter 52. Now we're going to see a, com- a continued a progression of his work, his humble stature, not even a perf- they're, they're looking perhaps for a perfected king 
like David without the flaws or Solomon or Hezekiah without all the flaws. Instead, this is the description of what Messiah will look like. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Wait a minute. That's not a, a glorious picture at all of any, anyone who knows anything about planting things. No, that's not. You don't even count that stuff that comes up from dry ground. It just comes up. Down on 69 Highway, when you're going north, just before 135th Street, there was some kind of, I believe it was a controlled burn about a month ago. Because it was a section that looked pretty designated that was black after they burned it. And because of the warm weather, green sprigs start coming forth through it. Now you all know, Johnson County, that's not real grass, okay? That's not rolled out sod that you can lay in and go to sleep in. Okay, that, that's, those, are spray, those are weedy grass stuff that comes up in February when it's warm. I mean, that's not what you would think of as something, you know, a, a really nice-looking lawn manicured that, that we have in our medians around here. You know, it's going to be something that looks, it's just, it just came up on its own. It's, it's on its own. It's not noteworthy. We don't think much of it. That's what we're talking about here. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. The ground's not not moist and fertilized and lush and ready to support a stalk. It's just dry ground and a, and a feisty sprig came out of it. A little root comes out of it. A shoot comes out of it. Harkens back to chapter 11 when from the stump of Jesse would come this servant we are now reading about. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is not a strong picture or a beautiful picture in any way. The dry ground, what is this referring to? Well, when Jesus came into Israel's existence, at least in time and space, we're talking a thousand years after the time of David. Not good times for Israel. They're occupied by Rome. Rome just considers them a pest who they just try to appease so they don't cause too much trouble for them but Israel's far away from its glory days, long time ago. And so here's Jesus, born into the house of David, which we all celebrate during the Advent season because it reminds us of God's perfect fulfillment of prophecy. But recognize that didn't mean anything for Jesus at his birth among people. David? That's a thousand years ago most people were thinking. Where's David's line now? There's no, and you're certainly not going to be the one that's going to be the new king. Rome's still king. So the house of David didn't mean much. It was dry ground at this moment. It reminds me of a friend that I had who grew up in the apartments across the street from me, government housing, and these parent, these, uh, we'd ha- hang out with all my friends over there. I knew them well. We'd hang out. We'd joke around about a lot of stuff. It was, the whole area itself wasn't that well off, so we kind of kid about that at time to, from time to time. And I had one friend who would always tell us, he told us as a bit of a joke, so we weren't making fun of him for this, but he used to say, well, I, my grandmother told me that I'm my great-great-great-great, he's like, say, 16 greats, my great-great-great-grandfather is Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of the country. We kind of laugh. We're like, Tom, it hasn't really passed on to you very well, buddy. I mean, it's not, how well is it working for you? Your old uncle Alexander didn't leave you a whole lot, did he? That's just 220 years before he was alive. A thousand years before, the house of David didn't mean what we think it does, at least in that time, in that moment. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. The picture that Isaiah is giving would have been shocking to the initial listeners when they're thinking of 
of their image of a Messiah to come. But it's exactly the picture we need revealed to us so we understand in fulfillment when Jesus comes and does exactly what is said here. It helps us understand, too, the role Christ played as our substitute. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He defied the things that, that people would look at and value. See, God is not concerned with human views of popularity or strength or power. The things that so impress us do not impress God. And so God himself, in the flesh, has no form or majesty that we should look at. We would not just recognize him in a crowd. And no beauty that we should desire him. The servant was born of lowly status, relative poverty, obscurity, plain in appearance. He wouldn't catch your eye if you were in a crowd with him. I have another friend from high school that just a couple days ago posted these pictures. She was in the airport, or she was on an airplane, same time that several WWE wrestlers were on route to a show they were doing somewhere. You won't hear that too much from the pulpit, WWE wrestlers. But when she was getting her luggage, she knew who they were, and she's like posting it. Oh, there's a bunch of wrestlers on the, on the plane. And then they went to get their luggage, and so she snaps a picture of her next to a guy named Paul White. Now, only those of, among you who are truly degraded in your culture know who Paul White is. He's the big show. So that's another level. If you know the big show, then you're another level. But the point is, the big show is the big show because he's seven foot tall. It had been 500 pounds. He's slimmed down to a trim 385. And so she takes a picture of her four foot 11 self next to the big show, next to the, the carousel where your luggage comes out. And you could see people kind of gawking. How can they miss this big, huge guy? I mean, when he came into a room, people saw him. And you know people like this. They just command the room. People know when someone's there. Well, guess what? Jesus wasn't that guy. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. One of the big problems with, with trying to portray Jesus in pictures is you will never get it right. Because we want to humanize him and make him look like something you would cast your eye on. But that's not what the scripture says about him. You would even notice him if he was sitting here. In fact, it gets worse as far as how he's described. This is an important truth for us, brothers and sisters, to be recalibrated concerning. God is not limited by the kinds of perspectives we have. And just because the world doesn't agree with the Savior we have depicted, they're wrong about him. And and it's an effort on the part of unbelief to try to recast Jesus into something he's not. Do you know that Islam, out of what they say is respect for the prophet Jesus, they just think of him as a prophet, they deny that the Bible has it right about his suffering and his death and his crucifixion like this. They deny this because they don't want a picture of a Messiah does that because they misunderstand the seriousness of our sin and what we need to pay for it, so they deny it outright. What's sad is Jews today do the same thing. They either say he's not really going to come in the way that the Bible depicts, it's more figurative, or he hasn't come yet because that isn't the Jesus that's going to be our Messiah. Our Messiah. The one they depict. The one who cannot save. Only the Messiah, Jehovah's servant, can save. And so we have revealed for us who he is. The picture that Paul paints, again for the Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Ray Ortland, who writes on this passage, says, well, why did the servant of the Lord sink so low? 
He had to become like us for us to become like him. But if we'd been there, every one of us would have despised and rejected him and turned away to follow after really cool people like Barabbas or Caiaphas or Pilate, depending on your politics or maybe even just your mood at the moment, because that's who we are. That's how we pick who we think is important. But God is not limited by these concerns, and we have the painting of the picture of our humble servant, and it becomes clear to us why he humbled himself like this, but recognize why he would stand out as so different and so hard for those who have not had the arm of the Lord revealed to them, so hard for them to accept. That leads us to the last verse in this section, in the verse that bridges into the explicit details of his bearing, the servant bearing our sins for us. In general terms now, this last verse of our section, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now notice something, as we have been studying through Isaiah, you probably have, like I have been, impressed with Isaiah's economy of words. He has so many words in his vocabulary that he uses. It's very rare that he would repeat a term. Twice in one verse, he says that Jesus is despised. There's something about Jesus, and it's multifaceted. It depends who you are. But something that was off-putting about him. It could have been the, the guilt people felt when they saw his righteousness in action. It could have been the anger someone felt that he wasn't the strong Messiah they thought was supposed to come and he's walking around saying that he is. Any number of things, but the characterization here is that he was despised. I mean, most people looked at him and rejected him. He was despised and he was rejected. A synonymous term with despising, uh, being despised is he was contemptible, as one version says. It's hard for us to imagine someone saying that about our Lord, but this is the truth of who he was when he came. That's how he was perceived. That's how he was received. Rejected by men. Now that's an interesting phraseology because it usually refers to those who were lepers. They were rejected by culture or society. Um, leper colonies are something that are more, uh, they're more contemporary. In the time of Isaiah, even through the time of Jesus, um, lepers were often put out of cities and towns or villages, but they would be left to roam around uh, to try to find food and try to find some place to be sheltered. And so they're, they're rather nomadic. And they were constantly rejected by people, put out. You can't come into my town. I mean, to give them something just to get them away. This is what we have as a description for Christ. He was despised and rejected by men. Oswald, who writes a commentary on this, said very succinctly, Jesus is not one of the winners. He's one of the losers. He's talking about how he was received, what his life was like on earth. I'll pause to say this to you, brothers and sisters, where whatever your experience is, Jesus does understand your sorrows. He does know what it's like to be put out. He does understand what it's like to be marginalized more than any of us. He was despised and rejected by men. One of the most tragic verses in the Gospel of John that I referred to earlier is in the early chapters when he's talking in the beginning of the chapter about Jesus being the fulfillment uh, the word, the eternal word, and the fulfillment, uh, the light coming, the fulfillment of God's plan. And, it's, and it says in 1, 10, and 11 of, chapter, of John, he was in the world and the world was made through him. He created it all. 
yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I mean, you can't even predict this stuff like for next year, let alone 700 years before. He was despised and rejected by men. And this is still true about Jesus. It's very clear that there's a lot of ignorance about Jesus, so they don't form a particular opinion. But if anybody knows what the biblical record is about Jesus, they generally either accept it or reject it. Or they'll, they'll say that's not, like, the, like Islam does, oh, that's not really, that's, that word has been changed. That's not the, the real world, despite thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts. Uh, someone messed that up along the way. That can't be really Jesus. There's no neutrality about Jesus, as the scripture declares him. The last part of the verse, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You can plainly see why he would be such, so humble in his, re- his rejection, his rejection on the part of, of the people around him and his people that he came particularly to speak to and to bring the message of salvation to. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief for a great many reasons. His rejection is certainly part of this. But he also had many sorrows because of various related causes. He was weighed down with sorrow. He bore the burden of sin. He bore the burden of the sins of his people. He was grieving over the condition of mankind. He weeped over unbelief. He was heavy laden. It was said in one commentary that Jesus was the most misunderstood person on the face of the earth. For how alone you may feel at times, and those are real feelings, you really feel like you're the only one and that nobody cares about you. Christ was the most misunderstood person on the face of the earth. In order to represent us and make payment for us, Jesus identified with us in this respect. Spurgeon preached many sermons on Isaiah 53. He's off-quoted for good reason. He's so quotable. He says so many things that bring the text uh, and our understanding of it alive. In one of his sermons, he said something related to how Jesus' understanding our sorrows helps us based on Isaiah 53.3. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Every child of God ought also to be comforted by the fact that our Redeemer is one of our own race, seeing that he was made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And he was tempted in all points like as we are, that he might be able to comfort them who are tempted. The sympathy of Jesus is the next most precious thing to his sacrifice. Let me say that again. The sympathy of Jesus is the next most precious thing to his sacrifice. You see how I celebrate the sacrifice of Christ because it's the grounds for our salvation. The next most precious thing is the way he sympathizes with us because he knows. I think Spurgeon's exactly right about that ranking. Spurgeon said, I stood by the bedside of a Christian brother the other day and he remarked, I feel thankful to God that our Lord took our weaknesses. Of course, said he, the grand thing was that he took our sins. But next to that, I as a sufferer 
feel grateful that he also took our weaknesses. Personally, Spurgeon says, I also bear witness that it has been to me, it has, it, it has been to me in seasons of great pain, superlatively comfortable to know that in every pang which racks his people, the Lord Jesus has a fellow feeling. We are not alone, for one like unto the Son of Man walks the furnace with us. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was hard to look at for many reasons that I already alluded to. When I was in college, I would take the, the subway system often enough in Chicago. <clears throat> and there were many homeless people who would live in the, around the stations in the tunnels underground. And I vividly remember getting onto a train. More than once this happened. And there was a man who was, his face was burned beyond recognition at some point in his life. And you could barely recognize him as human. And he would come onto the train, and he'd walk up the middle with a Tupperware, an old Tupperware container, and just hold it. He didn't have to say or do anything, and people would put money in it. But you know what people did? They couldn't look at him. They literally would look away as they gave the money. There was something they were ashamed of, or they felt bad that that thing hadn't happened to them. All numbers of reasons, probably, why people would hide their face from him. But that's how our Lord's described, that when he came, when he bore our sins, when Perhaps in the moment of his passion on the cross, people saw him in many ways. Some saw him as a failure because of it, and they hid their face. Others saw their sin and what he was doing, and they couldn't look. As one whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Again, 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see why it would be a stumbling block? The reason why it's not a stumbling block to you, by the way, is because the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Because a rational person would not look at this as victory. He got himself killed. That's not, that's not success. Now you know it is because the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I have a bit of a theory that when, Christian, when, when the world looks upon the church or people who say they're Christians with, with great affinity, I only can surmise that the Christians aren't talking about the cross very much. Because the world doesn't like the cross unless God reveals his arm to them. So we proclaim it. But it won't make us many friends. Isaiah 53 provides the basis, the grounds for our redemption. How beautiful are the feet of him who bring good news. And the good news is that we are sinners, but Christ has taken our place and has paid for our sins. Our particular tradition has many wonderfully written statements about this substitution. I want to close by reading one from what is called the Belgic Confession, written in the 1561. But how relevant this is. Contemplate these words as I close with them. We believe that Jesus Christ presented himself on our behalf before the Father to appease his wrath by his full satisfaction. By offering himself on the tree of the cross, 
and pouring out his precious blood to purge away our sins, as the prophets had foretold. For it is written, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and numbered with the transgressors and condemned by Pontius Pilate as a malefactor, though he had first declared him innocent. Therefore, the Belgic Confession goes on, he restored that which he took not away and suffered the just for the unjust as well in his body as in his soul, feeling the terrible punishment which our sins had merited, insomuch that his sweat became like unto drops of blood falling on the ground. He called out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me and has suffered all this for the remission of our sins? And finally, wherefore? We justly say with the Apostle Paul that we know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. We count all things but loss and dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose wounds we find all manner of consolation. Neither is it necessary to seek or invent any other means of being reconciled to God than this only sacrifice, once offered, by which believers are made perfect forever, This is also the reason why he was called by the angel of God, Jesus, that is to say, Savior, because he should save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, if you look upon the finished work of Christ and you believe, that is the merit that God counts to your righteousness. That is because the arm of the Lord has been revealed to you. Let's pray. Lord, we are again amazed by a a writing that would be 700 years before its fulfillment, to be so clear, so vivid. We're in awe of this. I pray that you encourage all all your children here, that you have called them to yourself because it is evidenced in the faith that they have in the finished work of Christ. I pray, Lord, for anyone here whose heart is still hardened. Lord, I pray for you to break that heart down, that their heart of stone would be replaced with the heart of flesh, that they would lay hold of the sufficient, perfect, substitutionary work of Jesus on their behalf and be forgiven of their sins. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together sing standing number 246. Let's sing the first two verses of Man of Sorrows, What a Name, as the elders prepare the table for the Lord's Supper.